Welcome to More Than Tracy Turnblad, the podcast about fat representation in entertainment and media. My name is Abby Rose Morris, and today I am interviewing theater journalist Meg Masseron, and we are going to specifically talk about Funny Girl and the article Meg wrote about Funny Girl in American Theater Magazine. So this episode is so belated. I am just very stressed and busy and crazy because I'm leaving Tuesday to go to the UK to do my show at the Edinburgh Fringe. I'm so, so, so excited. It's being directed by Sarah Shear, who's guested on this podcast. That's actually how I met her, and she's amazing. And then it's being stage managed by my friend Liberty, who just came on a bonus episode last month about the whole 30. And then rounding out the team is our fabulous accompanist, Daniela Teal. So it's going to be absolutely awesome. I'm spending a whole month over there, and then I'm also going to Greece for the last week of August. And oh my god, it's all like happening. And there's so much going on and so much to do. But because this episode is late, I can talk to you about what I did last night, which was I went to a drive-in to see the Elvis movie. Uh, Full disclosure, I made it about a third of the way in before falling asleep. And then my boyfriend said, you are asleep. Let's go home. But I just have to talk about this fat suit situation. Oh my God. It was just distracting to me. And like, I love Tom Hanks as much as the next gal. And this was just so awful. Like, it's such a bad fat suit. He looks like, I don't even know. He looks like one of the, who's the sage who safely sailed in to save our posteriors guys from Wicked. I don't remember what they're called. You know, the ones who do the like, show in the Emerald City in the middle of one short day. He looks like one of them. It was just so bad and annoying and terrible. And I'm tired of this happening over and over and over again because it's a celebrity we love, because it was a real person who really was fat. But it's like they made him this cartoonish fat villain to emphasize what a bad person he was. Like his fatness is literally like a visual expression of his badness as a person. It was just so glaring to me. Maxwell also said he was doing the Penguin, like from Batman, which is literally another perfect example of this. I don't think I talked about it on here, but in the most recent Batman movie with Robert Pattinson, Colin Farrell as the Penguin, he did look unrecognizable. He did. And for that reason, why does he need to play that person? Like, you could find a fat actor who actually looks like that and save a lot of time and money on prosthetics and not have it be horribly offensive. There is also this thing of a fat suit that like distances the character from the viewer. So like we're not viewing it as a real person because we know that somewhere in there it's Colin Farrell, but he's like playing a character. But if it was an actual fat person who was not wearing a fat suit, like I wonder if that feels like too mean to Hollywood or something like and yeah bold of me to assume that Hollywood is concerned about being too mean but I feel like the viewer is so distanced from the character by knowing that the actor looks nothing like that that it sort of gives the viewer more permission to think bad things about the fat character or to view the fatness as evidence of evil basically this fat suit was horrendous. And I'm very disappointed in Tom Hanks. I mean, Tom Hanks has always been like such a staple of many of my favorite movies that it was sad and disheartening to see him do a role like this, especially when like 
they didn't super need to even keep this guy fat. It's like, if you want to cast your thin, famous actor, is this guy's size important to the story besides just being evidence of him being bad? Like, I don't think it super is. I mean, I think he had like some health issues, if I recall, and that was like also a thing. But anyway, I didn't finish the movie. So this is all I can really say about it. But if you guys have thoughts, I would love to hear them. So as I'm getting ready for Edinburgh, everything's kind of coming together. And I would just love if you would tell your friends to go, if you have any friends who are going to be at the Fringe or who live in Scotland or the UK, like spread the word that the show's happening. I'm going to get back to you soon with details on possible virtual performances, but I'm just waiting to get confirmation from my venue on that. So you will be able to see the show. I will make it happen. I swear to God, but I don't have details on that quite just yet. While I'm at the Fringe, I'm hopefully going to be doing some interviews with other shows featuring plus-size performers, but that might mean just doing like little 15-minute snippets here and there, so it's not going to look like a normal interview episode type thing, but we will still have our normal Patreon episodes, so those will be posted at the Quirky Best Friend here for $5 a month. Link is in the description for that. And also for tickets to Edinburgh, if you are able to come and see the show there, that would be so amazing. It is August 15th through 20th at 10.05 p.m. at the Space on the Mile. And then it'll be August 22nd through 27th at 12.45 p.m. at the Space at Surgeon's Hall. I'm so excited. It is happening. It is literally crazy that it's happening. I'm like knocking on wood. I literally, I don't know if you could hear the knock, but I did just knock on the wood floor because I um, just cannot believe it's happening. Like I'm just constantly pinching myself. I left my apartment yesterday. Like I left for a month. So it's crazy that, wow, that, whoa, this is happening. I think, knock on wood, I knocked again. But yeah, thank you so much to everybody who was able to support, you know, morally, financially, publicity-wise, like any way you have supported this project and me and the show is just so incredibly wonderful. I could not have made this happen without all of you. And I am so excited to do it. It's going to be the craziest month ever. So thank you all so much for listening. And I hope you enjoy this funny girl gossip sesh with Meg Masseron. So welcome, Meg. I'm so excited to have you here and get into the tea. I'm so excited to be here as a longtime listener of your podcast. And I've always secretly like kind of wished I could find my way on here just to have the like ah! wonderful experience of talking with you about things that I know oh. you get and you know I get. Yes. Well, here we are doing it. Um, and I have been aware of you for a long time and you've been on a list, a very long list of people that I want to interview. So I'm glad you're here. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, so first things first. Let's talk about how you first got started in theater journalism and what drew you to it. So I pretty much knew that I wanted to do theater journalism around the age of 16. I was doing theater in high school um, and I was 
you know, I loved it and I loved being on stage and that had been my dream since I was like a little girl. But there were a lot of factors that made me realize like, well, I don't want to say this like it was a, a reality because it didn't have to be, but I just felt like I was never going to succeed on stage. Um, mm -hmm. I think part of that could have been like the way I looked, but I think it was also just, I just, I knew that I didn't have the talents that I needed and I didn't have the access to like the, you know, the workshops or whatever I needed to, yeah. to catch up with people so that by the time I went mm. to college, like I was on their level. So I was like, okay, well, <laughs> that's not happening, but I want to be in theater. Somehow I have to be part of this world. How I, how do I do this? I don't want to direct I don't want to do technical stuff as cool as it is. Mm -hmm. And um, I also had always wanted to be a journalist growing up. I read Cosmo at far too young of an age. And Me I was too. like, I want to, yeah, it's, it's very healthy for us. <laughs> no, but um, so I, I loved Cosmo <laughs> and I always wanted to be the one like writing the little personal essays in there. And I became a regional theater critic for my high school, representing my high school when I was 16. That's and I was so like, cool. oh, it was so cool. It was called the Cappies. I think it's like mostly a Maryland thing, but maybe not. I don't know. This Is that like one of the ago. Jimmy Awards pipeline things? Possibly. No one in my school made it to the Jimmy's, so gotcha. I couldn't tell you, but um, I was writing reviews as a theater critic would, but I had been fed this like myth my whole life that like there's one theater critic in the entire world and that's the New York Times theater critic. Yes. And I didn't realize that there are many other critics and yeah. I especially didn't realize that there is behind all of these critics also just like general theater journalists, people that interview the stars, people that yes. cover the opening nights. and. I kind of at first wanted to be a theater critic and I was also talked out of that a little bit because mm -hmm. it's so competitive that everyone had like a healthy dose of skepticism around me. Like, okay, yeah. Meg, like go be an astronaut. Like, you know, the, there's so little room for, right. for to find this work. Right. That's how people act about actors too. Like, yeah, they do treat it like you're like, oh, so you want to be Meryl Streep, baby? Like, <laughs> You know, and it's like, no, like there are so there's so much acting work that you wouldn't think of as acting work like and people don't realize that. And if I had known that when I was younger and known that, like, you don't have to be like the either number one most talented or number one most connected person to be an actor and make money off of acting and do acting on a professional level. That would have saved me so much heartache. And also, by the way, like when you said you felt like you didn't have the talent to pursue it and so you chose not to pursue it, I felt <laughs> that I didn't have the talent to pursue it and yet I chose to pursue it and I got a lot better. So if anybody out there is feeling like that, um, I'm with you, baby. And if you really want to do it, you hopefully, I hope that you can find a way to if that's what you really, really want to do or I hope that you can find a different path that you love as much like Meg. Exactly. So I, you know, kind of stepped away from the theater critic idea and I was like, okay, I'll just, uh, I'll work for BuzzFeed. <laughs> I wanted to work for BuzzFeed so bad in high school, but I wanted to be like video BuzzFeed creator. Like I wanted yes. to be like Kelsey from BuzzFeed <laughs> or like Eugene from BuzzFeed. <laughs> it was the Gen Z millennial cusp dream. It I think, really was. <laughs> it really was. Okay. Um, so I contributed content to BuzzFeed for a while when I started college. And I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to do general journalism, whatever. Um, and then I went to the 30th anniversary gala for Phantom of the Opera. I, Wait, shut I up. Got Meg, I was there. What? what? I, I was, was there. Did I, talk, did I talk to you? I don't know. I, I was really drunk. 
I think I I I may have been as well. I think I talked to you. Where oh are you God. from originally? Vermont. Okay, I may have talked to someone who may have been from Vermont. I don't know. I always thought you looked familiar. But anyway, basically, I ended up there and I was just like, you know, just fawning over Sierra Bogus in the crowd. She was on the red carpet. And it like clicked in my head because I saw like all of these people interviewing her and doing journalism things. I mean, there were probably like 15, 20 journalists. Yeah. There. And I was like, oh, theater journalism is a thing. And yeah. it's like, even though it may be a very small industry, I think it's a thriving industry. And I was like, well, screw it. I'm adding a theater arts major or theater history, actually a theater history nice. major. And I'm going to be a theater journalist. And then I just studied and I did that. And then I accidentally became published my sophomore year of high school by TDF stages. Wow. <laughs> It was an accident. I just pitched to Raven there and I had three ideas and two of them admittedly were like very general ideas that had definitely been done before because I was so new. Mm -hmm. And one of them was like, what if I trauma dump and like relate it to Phantom of the Opera? And she was like, yes. And I was like, okay, great. (laughs) Um, So that was the, and that was a personal essay. So that was the Mm -hmm. first thing I ever had published was a very personal, personal essay. I strongly suggest starting your career like that. Like just get it out of the way (laughs) and then I didn't write it's yeah it was it was a time um and then I didn't write much for a little while because you know I was still just like a sophomore in college um and then I stumbled upon a few more opportunities and now I am fully in the swing of freelancing I love that you just like got it all out there like what a what a fun (laughs) idea and I feel like a lot of your work has been pretty personal accidentally it just kind of keeps happening that way I personally am much more happy to just talk Mm -hmm. about other people write about other people do interviews features even just like news pieces but every now and then something will happen in the theater world and it will kind of connect to something I've been through in a way and I'll have so many things to say about it and I'll tweet like a 10 tweet thread about it at first and then I'll look at the thread and I'll realize that is like one fourth of an article I'll delete the thread and then I'll turn it into an article and I'll pitch it around. (laughs) I love that. I love that. I feel like I have a similar journey with my, I mean, I'm not a journalist by any means, but I am an amateur journalist, personal essayist on my Patreon. So those of you who want to read my writing, you can join my Patreon. Um, So yeah, but like, I, I always feel like I go off on Twitter and then I'm like, this could be something. (laughs) <laughs> it could. There, I mean, there are so many things I think that we, again, bringing in the Gen Z millennial cusp thing that we, we do online and we just kind of like put out there for free online. Yeah. And it's all very thoughtful, intelligent work. And with a little tweaking, like you can take, you know, a Twitter thread and just turn it into a personal essay. That's so cool. There is something so specific about being Gen Z millennial cusp, I really feel. Because like, I mean, like me, sounds like you were in high school during the BuzzFeed craze. Oh, yes. (laughs) But like now being a millennial is like cringe. But back in the day, being a millennial, I thought was so cool. And I just wanted to be a BuzzFeed millennial. And I would read all these articles about 90s kids, even though I am like a 90s (laughs) baby at the most. And I would be like, can I relate to any of this? Can I remember any of this? I just want to be a cool 90s kid. I just want to be 26 and working for BuzzFeed and living in New York City. And now people are like, oh, no, you're Gen Z. When when I was growing up, they were like, you're a millennial. And that is why the term zillennial exists. For Indeed. us lost in between, us tormented souls who don't know who we are. <laughs> right? Oh, my God. 
Um, okay, we're so far on a tangent. So to pull it back, how do you like relate to your body within theater? Like, have you always been aware of it? Or when did you become aware of it? So it's funny, a lot of people actually asked me that after the article came out, I think people kind of assumed that I was on like the um, same pipeline as so many other people where I was a performer and then I pivoted to do something else, which I really like, yeah, I did a little high school theater, but I definitely don't think that's ever who I was. I never saw myself as a performer, probably because I never thought I could succeed as one. Um, So I definitely didn't think a lot about how my body was perceived on stage because I didn't spend that much time on stage. However, what I really noticed, not just on stage, but also in television, in movies, in everything, was how no one ever looked like me on stage. TV was a little different. There were people who looked like me on TV and they were the butt of the joke or they didn't get the boyfriend or Mm -hmm. all all the tropes. But the weird, funny thing about theater for me growing up, except for Tracy Turnblad, um, literally no one ever looked like me on stage, not even as a joke, not even as a, you know, person sidelined, like, you know, to the back of the stage in one number. I never saw anyone that looked like me. And obviously the worst part of experiencing fat phobia is not, you know, not seeing yourself here or there. There are much more damaging, marginalizing structures, but that was definitely something that I think really hurt me in a way that I didn't realize until I got older. And then I was like, maybe the reason why until I was 20 years old, I had this deep rooted belief that like no boy was ever going to want me. And if he did, It had to be justified by other means, like my personality, my humor, my like career success when I had a career. Um, He was never going to like me for how I looked, like ever, ever, ever. And I connected the dots that that was because I never saw other than Hairspray. Yeah. (laughs) Um, A woman on stage or even in a movie or even on TV who looked like me being pursued romantically by any guy, especially, you know, quote unquote, a conventionally attractive guy, which never mattered to me. But it was it was really damaging oh my god i literally could not relate to that more like could not relate to it more and that stuff gets in your head it's still in my head and i've been in a relationship for three years like me too oh my god wait three years same here (laughs) i'm like are we the same person at the phantom of the opera gala what did they put in the champagne (laughs) (laughs) no but yeah since um july 2019 I've been with my same boyfriend and it's still like, like I still have all this stuff. It did not go away because, uh, you know, somebody loved me. (laughs) It doesn't. And it's especially weird for me too, because my weight has always fluctuated drastically throughout my life because of like different health issues and stuff. So when I met my boyfriend, I actually was thin. Um, and then when some health issues kind of bounced back and when I also started a medication, I quickly, you know, kind of became the biggest size I had been thus far, which was slightly bigger than I had been in the past. Um, And that was so weird because that just in a weird way almost solidified that belief in my head of like, oh, yeah, well, you you didn't get him with this body and you wouldn't have like he wouldn't have even looked. And he's like, Mike, that's such bullshit. Like the first thing I liked about you was the jokes you were telling. The first thing I liked about you was your smile, which doesn't change with your weight. And I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a a special kind of whiplash. (laughs) 
Yeah, that is that must be really hard. I have heard people talk about that before. Honestly, I've heard it talked about in the reverse of people who used to be fat, then getting thin, getting in a relationship and being like, my partner never would have dated me before. And what does that mean for me if I gain weight, if I have a kid, if I get a health issue that causes weight gain, anything like that. So it's it's a trip from both sides. And I don't think I hear perspectives that are in the vein of yours enough because this is another conversation, but I think we really love to have a lot of pity for white women who are thin who used to be fat but that is a whole other episode (laughs) but yeah that's super relatable and I think that it's very relevant to the funny girl conversation as well because there is just simply so much here and I think also funny girl low-key is about that like I'm not seeing enough people discuss how the real Fanny Bryce she wasn't fat but she was not like conventionally pretty and even if she w- it would be considered that now, she was not in her time. And so the casting choices, in my mind, really need to reflect some element of that. Um, because I think it's so much more poignant when you're actually seeing someone who's not conventionally attractive have the experiences of a person who's not conventionally attractive. Yeah, no, I think it makes so much... I was considering writing a personal essay about this back when Beanie was first cast, um, and then I got scared, because I was like, people are going to tell me that I am reaching, and I'm seeing things that aren't there, but I was going to write a personal essay about how, like, in 2022, a fat fanny makes more sense than any other fanny, I think, yeah. because th- it's a this show very is... very useful shorthand for not conventionally it pretty. And... It's also, like, very easy to be seen from far away on stage. You can't see every little detail of someone's face. At least my nearsighted ass can't. But um, I I really feel like when you're sitting so far away and you see somebody who's visibly different than the other people on stage, that really tells a story in a very handy way. And a part of me is like, you know, <laughs> I love Barbara. She's so fucking beautiful. Oh, my God. And she is so talented. And, you know, we'll talk more about Beanie Feldstein's voice and get into all that. But, like, all other things being equal, I do wonder if somebody like her or, like, Leah Michelle is just easier for people to root for. I think that's easily a huge part of it. Um, We will talk about Beanie and her voice later on. But, I, yeah, I, I just think that casting someone in a larger body just makes so much sense for Funny Girl. Just outside of the fact that also, like, we're trying to, like, you know, translate Beauty Standards 2022... Um, also just like the fat experience, the show is called funny girl. And I know when I was a kid, I felt like I had to be so freaking funny to get people to laugh at me with me just to get people to smile at me. Um, because otherwise they wouldn't notice me. They would act like I wasn't there, but if I was funny, then they would at least like me as a friend. They wouldn't have a crush on me, but they would like me. Yeah. And I, I almost had an opposite experience because I totally get where you're coming from and that's like a piece of it but to me it almost felt insulting to be called funny and it it felt like it was something that came effortlessly to me without any comedic skill because people just saw my body and assumed comedy and I think you were right on the nail when I I grew up I say I grew up as if I'm not still I am very neurodivergent Mm -hmm. and um learning kind of observing and learning people's patterns of behavior was not an, an innate skill for me. It was something I had to yeah. figure figure out like much later in life. So I think the funny thing is something that I probably didn't figure out like 
maybe until this moment when you explained it to me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I also mentioned in the article how people, you know, would immediately write me off and call me annoying when I would enter a new social environment or a new school before I could even like open my mouth and be annoying because you know what I am annoying I I'm really annoying like absolutely I'm gonna believe you if you say (laughs) I'm annoying after I speak but it was kind of like I would come to school this new school or this new social group and I would be very quiet very shy because I know I'm annoying and I'm checking myself (laughs) Um, and before I would even have the chance to speak to be annoying to say something like really dumb um they would be like oh she's annoying I don't want to be friends with her yeah so that was something that I figured out probably once I lost weight in my middle school years and all of a sudden no one was calling me annoying and I was like oh they mean fat That is so interesting because I feel like I've always been very annoying specifically to straight cis men. And (laughs) maybe I'm maybe I'm imagining this. Maybe I'm oversensitive, whatever. But I think that I feel like they look at me like a bug on the windshield or like like they just want to like 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 slap me out of the way. Um, And they're like, why is she talking? (laughs) like that's just the vibe I get from them and like I am also annoying I talk a lot I have trouble stopping talking I have trouble stopping myself from adding my two cents into every conversation whether or not it belongs there I don't know for sure if I'm neurodivergent if I am it's very much the ADHD variety and I think I am innately really good at figuring people out and I actually just had an intense conversation with my dad about it where I was telling him how Um, When I was younger, I felt like in hindsight, I was manipulating people because I could get in under people's skin, knew how people worked, knew what they responded to. And I watched the other fat kids act desperate for attention. And somehow I knew that that was the social kiss of death. And so (laughs) I developed a different set of coping skills and my most I mean, that could not cover for my lack of athletic ability. So I was still pitched last in gym, but nobody like really (laughs) openly bullied me. Everybody knew better than to ask me out fake because I wouldn't fall for it. Like, and I think that it was what I had to do at the time. And a few years ago, I looked back on that time and I was like, Oh my God, I was awful. But as I was telling my dad the other day, now I look back on it and I'm like, I did what I had to do. You did what you had to do because something I say all the time when I'm trying to explain to like my lovely, beautiful, um, thin boyfriend who is so sweet and really does want to understand and really does seek to, um, is I explained to him that like growing up fat in 2000, as opposed to kids who are growing up today in 2022, which is still never a, it's still it's not never good. a good time to be fat, <laughs> but the 2000s were brutal. It was so bad I showed him this photo of Jessica Simpson that I remember like all over the magazines was calling her fat which if she is that's not a bad thing but she absolutely was thin um so the perception of what actually constituted as fat at that time was so warped that for people who actually really were like fat or you know actually were larger bodied they thought you were just about to keel over dead like that's literally what they thought and I was actually fat for a while as a kid and then after like enough disordered eating swag I became I guess I would say mid-sized now I was like probably a size 10 12 most of like middle and high school and um still totally treated as fat felt fat everything that I had been taught told me that I was fat and then like I only gained weight after that so 
it's very interesting because I look back at certain pictures and I'm like, you weren't fat then. And I, but, but like for the time I was considered fat and I was reading all these books, like the click and shit and pretty little liars that were like, Oh, I can't believe I'm a size four, not a size two. I'm so fat. And that just leaked right into my brain. And the theater standard matches that perfectly. And theater acting was all I ever wanted to do. And I had already ruled out film and TV by this time because too many people told me you had to be attractive to make it in Hollywood. So I was like, theater is what I have to do. And yet there were literally no fat people. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know um, what, what possessed me to pursue it anyway. I guess I just thought at some point in the indeterminate future, I would lose enough weight to be taken seriously, but that never happened. And here I am. I, I, I also had that idea. I was always like, oh, I'll find a boy. Well, that's what sucked. That's what sucked because I always told myself, I'll, f- I'll find a boyfriend when I lose weight. Yeah. And then I accidentally lost weight from health issues. And then I did yeah. find a boyfriend. Oof. Oh my God. It's such a, it's such a sociological mind fuck. <laughs> it really is. It really is. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't notice the w- if people were treating me differently when I was thinner it's possible the difference just wasn't that huge or it's possible that I was still somewhat fat and so people didn't see a big difference. I did get definitely did get compliments but like I didn't get more male attention but maybe also that I'm like maybe I didn't I just didn't have anything to compare it to like I I don't know. Yeah that and also you (laughs) kind of were running with that defense mechanism so long to just like disregard people's weird freaking behavior that maybe you just didn't pick up on it. The the amount of times that I've heard somebody catcall nearby and I thought well that's not for me. Oh no yeah I was never catcalled until I was thin and it was like really disgustingly weird how in my brain I was like oh so I am hot now. I mean, I've never been thin, so I moved to Philly and was living in the city and walking around. And also, people are fatter in Philly. Like, it's just a lot more normal to be fat than it was in Vermont, where I grew up. So suddenly, I did get catcalled, and I got marginally more male attention. More than zero. And so, um, suddenly, that was horrible. Horrible for me. I hated it. I felt so violated and I was like the one perk of being fat. It's being left alone and now I don't even get that. Like I was pissed. (laughs) And now I don't get it anymore either because I stay inside all the time. I'm slightly fatter or I I don't even know. New York. It's (laughs) New York. New York is a it's a it's a rough place to to be a larger bodied. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't even know. But it's very weird. Because New York and Philly are culturally, don't hate me for this, New Yorkers or Philadelphians, culturally similar in a lot of ways, I have to say. You are right. You are correct. (laughs) I grew up right below Philly in like the northern part of Maryland. Uh It's it's like same city, different font. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Completely agree. Anyway, let's get back into Funny Girl because I want to just walk everybody through it who hasn't been following the drama. And I know I've seen a lot of people online be like, what is going on? I'm confused. So let's like explain it and take them through it. So let's see back in what last year, Beanie Feldstein was announced as going to play Fanny Bryce in the revival. And many fat people rejoiced, (laughs) myself included. I did a podcast intro about it. I was super happy. How are you feeling, Meg? I... Uh, it's I have such vivid memories of this day for good and bad reasons but she had been cast for a while and um, I actually didn't think about it as much before because I was familiar with Beanie but I hadn't like 
seen a piece of media with her in a while because I don't watch a lot of television and films so I kind of like forgot that she had a body very similar to mine um so I was like cool Beanie's nice I like her um but then the the like kind of teaser video came out and as as soon as I saw her I was like (gasps) that that literally looks like me I was like no way I'm like always yeah having this weird kind of perception of myself there's like this weird validating thing that I need to deconstruct in my head where the way that I would try to combat my own internalized fat phobia towards myself was I would look at other people who looked like me and I'd be like well I think she's pretty so I need to think the same about myself and shut up and I kind of immediately did that bad habit (laughs) where I saw Beanie and I was like oh my god she looks like me and she's going to be in one of my favorite shows and she's going to be on Broadway and freaking Ramin Karimlu is going to like fawn over her. I was, I was like, I, and then as the video went on, I just was sobbing in, in my, my work study student job desk office. I was crying buckets of tears. Cause I was like, this is going to be the first time that I sit in a Broadway theater and a character that I did identify with yeah. is actually reflected on a on a surface level as well for me. So I was overjoyed. But then people got really weird really fast when I tweeted yes. about it. Really, yes. really weird. Um, <laughs> I had only recently seen the movie of Funny Girl, or maybe I only saw it after Beanie was announced. Like, I didn't really grow up with it, which is weird for a musical theater Jew. But I really <laughs> identified with what little I knew of it from Glee. And also just like, you know, you're a theater student, you're looking for songs to sing, you do research. I found the song Funny Girl and I was like, I've never related to anything more than this. It would be so cool if I could play a role like this, you know. But my main association with it was Leah Michelle and Who Looks the Maximum Like Barbara Streisand. <laughs> so I never I never thought it would happen. I thought it would obviously be, you know, Leah Michelle and maybe Lady Gaga if we were lucky. <laughs> and then it was announced and my immediate reaction was jealousy. I was immediate, my immediate reaction. I was like, I wasn't like, it should have been me or anything. I was like, this bitch is living my dream, all my (laughs) dreams. And then of course, in that jealousy, my immediate spite reaction as an actor, as a plus size Jewish actor was, well, can she sing it? (laughs) Like that was my immediate reaction. And then I thought about it and I was like, do you know the doors this could open for young plus size Jewish actresses doing the show regionally, understudying the show, people's minds opening to a Fanny Bryce who does not perfectly match the picture of Broadway leading lady that we've all been fed since we knew what Broadway was like then I was immediately extremely pro because I just thought about it and sort of talked myself down from my jealous place so then I was so excited about it and then that video came out are we talking the sits probe video we are talking the sits probe video oh boy (laughs) Uh. <laughs> would you like to uh explain what happened and also yeah. will you explain further the backlash of what happened after beanie was cast well i personally i didn't witness anything super bad the day that beanie was cast or rather the day the trailer teaser video came out um right towards beanie it was oddly more towards people kind of celebrating her casting and what it meant for those of us who looked like her the the focus was thankfully not on beanie at that point it was on Mm -hmm. those of us celebrating so i know a lot of people my tweet got like i think like two thousand likes or something like that so people saw it um and people were like well why are you making it about her body and i would like click on their profile and they were like thin and i was like shush (laughs) 
you don't <laughs> understand what it's like to never see yourself or anybody who looks like you do the thing you love and to be categorically shut out of doing the thing you love. Like, I'm not, I'm sorry. I'm not listening to any thin white people's perspectives on this. <laughs> and for me, my um, kind of way that I internalized uh, stories on stage, again, because I wasn't going to be an actor, even when I wanted to be one, I just knew that it wasn't going to happen, was I, my biggest thing since I was literally three years old is like, this is a whole, like, people will say that I have internalized misogyny for this, but really, I am just mushy as heck. I have just wanted to find, like, my true love since I was yeah. literally three years old. I would fawn over Cinderella and, and the prince. I think there are a lot of people out there who are right there with you, and I think it's very stigmatized and shamed in our individualist culture. Yeah, I mean, people have always been like, oh, well, you don't need a guy to survive. And I'm like, when exactly. did I say that? When did I say that? I just like romance. I like love. Yeah. I was raised on Nora Ephron, okay? Leave me be. Yes. Um, so the way that I always internalized lack of representation on stage was not like, oh, it'll never be me up there because I already knew with my singing that wasn't going to happen. It was that I, in all the, because all my favorite musicals are like romantic one way or another, it was like, I'm never going to see a Christine Daae that looks like, well, also, I need to deconstruct that because we don't necessarily want the Phantom to go after us anyway. <laughs> I'll, I'll talk. To, I'll talk to my therapist a little. Oh my more god, about that's that a whole as- other episode. <laughs> no, but it's so true, though. It's so true. I, I'm completely there with you, but I was in denial about it, and I was like, I don't need a man. Fuck romance. If it doesn't want me, I don't want it. And that is true. But then I've since realized, and it really scared me to like get in a relationship and like it because I was, I was like, maybe I won't like it, but. I did, and I do, and I literally just posted a TikTok about this like an hour before our interview. Our oh my interview. god, I can't wait to watch it. Yeah, but it's like, I just think it's very stigmatized because we want like individualism, feminism, and um, self-reliance, and total self-reliance, and total independence, but that's not how humans are made to like exist. We're supposed to be in community. Like, it feels so right to be in a community and be accepted by a community. And it feels right for a lot of people to be in a relationship. And if you don't want that, awesome. But if you do, like, that's valid. Because not only is it, like, an emotional need for a lot of people, but also, like, it gives you a lot of societal privileges as well. Exactly. And it was something that no matter how much people teased me for it, um, I, I never let go of that. I was like, no, like all I, all I want is to find my romance, to find my future husband. Like I, I love this and I'm not letting go of it. Um, and that was how not seeing people in romantic roles that looked like me on stage damaged me because it just further reinforced the idea that like, no one is going to go after the fat girl. There is no Prince Charming for the fat girl. I either need to lose weight or I'm going to be alone. Yeah. Or you're going to have to be with someone who is like a gross fetishizer or mistreats you, but is the best you can get. The Phantom. <laughs> oh shit! No, I'm just no, I have, I have, I, I, I think I need to do like a a part two article deconstructing my weird uh, thoughts about the Phantom because I I still love him a little bit, but he is so bad. <laughs> Anyone who was on Tumblr in 2012 knows there is a large contingent of people out there who are very sexually obsessed with the Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> And and we as a society do need to talk more about this. <laughs> oh my god, that's a 
that's gonna that's gonna take a lot of a lot of writing and a lot of therapy to get through (laughs) but anyway this is literally why it is so important to make this podcast and to write articles like your article because this is why this is what representation is like i'm not doing this for other fat actors like i mean yeah that's great like that we need to see ourselves it's kind of a vicious circle like you see yourself on stage you feel like you can be on stage and this is like a huge part of why i was excited about beanie but also like the impact it can have on a person to see somebody who looks like them for the first time in a leading role in a romantic role in a role that is layered and complex and taken seriously when they've only ever seen themselves portrayed as the butt of a joke like that can like save a person's life i'm dead serious and that's why it's so important to talk about and that's why representation matters and not just for fat people either that goes for every category yeah it's it's so much more than like you know a validating feeling it's it's deeper than that when i saw that i when i saw beanie in funny girl i literally felt like childhood wounds were patched up like i i felt more healed by that than i did by two years of therapy i it just there's something i i think we as artists um and as writers even we are very visual people and there's something about seeing something visually manifested for you you can hear it all you want from your boyfriend that like you are loved and you know you are cherished and your body is beautiful despite what society thinks but but when you see it happen to another person even if even in a fictional setting it's it's like it clicks in your brain it's a visual learning moment like oh no 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 no! it's not just me this can happen and everyone else in this theater is watching it happen with me and it's real yes and that goes for real life too like even real life representation is important is what i'm saying and like i know you and your boyfriend are like so cute on social media and i love that anyway like let's skip forward to when the show was mounted and the reception started to come in so it it was um it was kind of a disaster from the start uh very little of which is beanie's fault so i think the the turning point for when things were like there were a few trolls here and there about beanie that like i think would have been there for anyone it's just that maybe fat phobia like worsened that in that case um there was this i think it was first night of previews or it may have even been the first like or the the dress rehearsal night like the open dress rehearsal but there was some first showing to the public where someone got an audio bootleg you know like voice memo on their phone yes and they released it on twitter or wherever um and there was a rumor flying around that this was the first time they had run through the show without stopping with an audience present which who knows if that's true but i listened to it and i was excited about beanie one because i like her and i think she's an awesome actress uh i watched impeachment and i was obsessed with it but I was I was rooting for her also, again, because like it was it was representation, whether or not people wanted to admit that it is and it's positive representation. And she's and there fatter a- than Monica Lewinsky, like who yes. I know was called fat at the time. But like this, it, that is unprecedented to see somebody and in fact, twice in a row, play a historical figure who wasn't fat be played by a larger bodied actor like that yes. is incredible. That is unprecedented. It's almost like 
audiences can suspend their disbelief and we can cast all sorts of people in all sorts of roles and just use our imaginations to make it work. It's almost like body size isn't the only thing about a person. (laughs) Right, especially a woman. Um, So anyway, I listened to the audio and I actually kind of had good faith at the beginning that like maybe it really was as bad as people were saying and that people were reacting appropriately because I just I'd never seen anyone like immediately like shit on something so badly before so I was like wow this must be rough so I played it I listened to it and I was like okay you know what this is not what I was hoping for either if I'm being completely honest but I don't think that she is a bad singer, like people are saying it all. I yeah. do have experience singing. Again, I didn't go anywhere with it because I didn't think it was going anywhere. But I was classically trained as a soprano for a hot minute. And I could hear the quote unquote problems in her voice. And they were all, in my opinion, things that are tied to nerves. I could tell that, you know, she was tensing up. I could tell that there there were, you know, there was some nervous breathing. Um, and yeah. oh my God, I, I would feel that way too, you know, going on stage when a, a bunch of people had already stopped believing in me since that Sits Probe video. If someone's already counting me out and I have to go out here and put on this show, I and this is really my first experience being a lead, like lead lead on Broadway, I would be freaking out too. So I thought, yeah, I can understand how to an untrained ear, this sounds like quote unquote bad singing, but I don't think it's bad at all. I think this was just a a night. I think this was a night for Beanie, and I'm excited to see it for myself. Um, yeah. And I did go to previews, I think, like, right before previews ended. I think it was, like, five days before. And she was fabulous. Like, she had a lovely, beautiful voice. And I immediately was like, yeah, that's all it was. She was just nervous. I assume. I assume. I don't know her. I wish I did. I love I her. I <laughs> did not hear the those clips i tried to avoid them because i was like i'm gonna wait till i see it and judge it then and uh i did i really i heard the sits probe video and i thought it's fine like the sits probe was fine and i thought there was an understanding that because she was stunt cast the standards were a little bit lower i have to be honest like they obviously needed somebody who was famous to be in this role it's obviously difficult to find a famous young jewish woman who can sing at all because there's just not that many in Hollywood that are like that fit the profile for the role that have the comic timing etc and so I thought we all went into this with an understanding that she was stunt cast she's not a singer first and that's fine and I was like this is refreshing because even if she can't sing like I don't need everybody on Broadway to be a perfect belter like I like imperfections in the voice and if it can serve the story and if it's you know capable enough then I don't need it to be perfect um my a college musical theater performance professor had this thing called ugly but useful singing which is when the singing isn't perfect and pretty but it gets the point across and like gets the emotion across and is acted adequately and like is serving the story that's being told so i was like fuck yeah like take detach broadway from this like perfect singing which is something i've also struggled with my whole life like worrying that my singing isn't perfect enough or isn't broadway quality or whatever so I, I was like, I don't need it to be perfect. And I don't understand why everyone else is forgetting this is a stunt cast. And she's not a singer. And I've, I heard her sing before. I heard her sing in the Sondheim concert. And I was like, she's not a singer first. And in fact, I actually was kind of mad that she was cast in the Merrily We Roll Along musical movie. Because that one, now that should have been me. But... <laughs> 
should. It's my dream role. It's just my dream role. That's all. But, you know, I was like, I, I definitely had, didn't understand why people loved Beanie Feldstein so much when she first came out. Like, you know, when, not literally came out, but when she first became famous, I was like, she's fine. Like, and until she was Fanny Bryce on Broadway, I was like, I don't really get it, but she's fine. But now I'm a staunch supporter because I, I, no matter what my opinion of her talent is, like, nobody deserves to go through what she went through in the show. No. And you're spot on about the voice, too, because from what I've understood studying theater history and talking to people who are older than me, even though I wasn't alive in the 80s and most of the 90s, it seems like voices back then did not, it wasn't as as important as the acting. And I always call this the wicked effect. Oh, actually, I disagree. It's the mega musical effect. Yeah, that makes sense, too. Either way, there was a turning point If anything, it's the Andrew Lloyd Webber, you know... (laughs) Frank Wildhorn, more yes in effect. That's what I think. Oh, Andy. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) no matter what, I think there was a time when we valued acting over singing. And now we're in a time where we value singing over acting. And that's certainly been apparent in some of the Broadway performances I've seen. No offense to those people. But uh, there's been like some, there's been some stale acting and excellent singing. And the thing I always say is, if I wanted to hear good singing, I would just go to a concert. Yeah. I am seeing musical theater because I want to see stories told on stage right. through music because music is great. Music but it's is part fun. of the it's part of the spectacle. It's part of the tourism aspect. You like It is. That's that's commercialism. <laughs> Exactly. It is. But um yeah. but I would much rather have uh, an actor who sings than a singer who oh, acts. Me um, too. And I think that's also part of why I loved Beanie, but again, what I want to stress is Beanie is not a bad singer. She's not no. a bad singer. I saw her in the show. A lot of people who claim she is have not seen her yet and think yes. the sits probe and the bootleg is uh, the only time Beanie has ever sang in she her life. She was not even bad in the sits probe. I'm sorry. She sang for like three seconds. No, she wasn't bad in the sits probe. I saw people saying that she was nasal and I was like, that's how okay. her voice sounds. Have you heard her speak? Like, I'm sorry. Yeah. I was Some like, people's okay, voices why? are nasal. Get the fuck over it. Like, nobody complains about, like, there's there's tons of people with nasal voices who do just fine. Kristen Chenoweth's voice is nasal. Okay, I, maybe that's uh-huh. a bad example because she is such a phenomenal singer. But, like, you know, people have different vocal qualities. And why are you punishing specifically this person for sounding unique? Like, I don't know. It's, it's just puts a weird taste in my mouth. And <clears throat> regarding, like, Broadway singing and the standards getting so impossibly high... Um, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I did a workshop with Katie Huffman in high school. Like she came to my hometown. She was friends with my voice teacher, did a workshop. And what she said in that workshop, I will never forget. She said the level of proficiency on Broadway has never been higher and the level of artistry has never been lower. I think about that all the time. And if you listen back to a musical that's been revived several times and you listen to the cast recordings and particularly in this instance, let's take Merrily We Roll Along. So the original cast of Merrily We Roll Along, you can hear the voices are not perfect. They are far from perfect. In fact, they do not have the technique that we expect Broadway singers to have now. And yeah, they're all really young and everything. And like, we know that musical was a flop, but that's true of a lot of musicals from around that time and before. Listen to the unsinkable Molly Brown cast recording. I'm really in my theater nerd now, but if you listen to like I Ain't Down Yet or like any of the songs that she sings, you're, I worry for this person. I'm like, are you okay? Like, <laughs> or like, 
if you listen to like the original like Gucci song from Mame, like she's flipping. She is not. She's a character singer, um, and that is allowed. And then, if you skip forward to the next Merrily Roll Along, this is the Off Broadway York Theater revival from I believe the nineties. The voices get slightly better. And then if you skip forward to the 2000 Celia Keenan-Bolger, Lin-Manuel Miranda one, uh, the voices become perfect. And it's just very interesting to see literally the steady progression over time and the musical theater and music becoming more demanding and singing becoming more prioritized and acting becoming deprioritized. And that was really annoying to me when I was going to school for it because I felt that I did not have a Broadway level voice. I think it's close, but it's not it like... I've, I've heard a little. It's uh, it's there. It's not close. It's there. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. But, like, it's a huge point of insecurity for me for a long time because I actually have some of the same vocal issues Beanie does, not the nasality, but I had a really big break. My puberty kind of, like, cleft my voice in two, and I have, I'm still trying to rebuild it and get that strong mix that's required by most contemporary rep. I can belt, but, like, the middle is hard for me. It's really hard for me. Anyway... So that is just very near and dear to my heart. And it was my crusade when I was auditioning for college and I was really looking for acting first programs. And I think I did a good job finding a school that while had excellent vocal training and I really loved my voice teachers there and I feel like I improved a lot there. It didn't only accept students with one kind of voice and it didn't disallow our voices from becoming unique. And I loved that about my school. Sorry, I've been talking for so long. But anyway... (laughs) Now now that you have actually seen the show, what are your feelings? First of all, obviously, the acting and the comedy was impeccable. Like, there's no way to deny that. It was super weird how I saw people in previews saying, you know, the acting and the comedy was great. The singing maybe wasn't what I was looking for. And then all of a sudden, when the bullying pile on started the day after reviews, people were saying that she was a bad actress. People were saying that she mm. wasn't funny. And I was like... I don't think you know who Beanie Feldstein is if you're saying that. And I certainly don't think you saw her in this show. But nonetheless, I I thought the acting and comedy was 10 out of 10. Her voice, I thought, first of all, she did great. She didn't not hit notes. She didn't not be in tune. She was fantastic. What I will say is Funny Girl is a very jazzy, brassy score. And she does not have a jazzy, brassy voice. And traditionally you know, sonically, we wouldn't expect a, you know, a very kind of light, sweet, nasally voice to pair well with a jazzy, brassy score. But I I was kind of explaining this to my friend one day, and I was like, I, I guess I get why people think that it was vocally miscast, because it's not like, you know, typically we don't see this voice paired with this sound. And he was like, yeah, but why not? And it clicked in me. And I was like, you're you're right. Why not? Why have we made up these arbitrary rules of like what voices can work with what scores? Obviously, like, yeah, there are, I guess, certain limitations of like what makes sense. Like, I don't know if me being a classically trained soprano, I would go and try and do pop punk. Perhaps American Idiot is not the show for you. American Idiot might not be it for me. <laughs> but at the same time, I, I don't think it's wrong to try these things. I don't yeah. think it's wrong to say let's put this person with this voice type this kind of repertoire um in this role and let's see if it works and if it doesn't we're certainly not going to brutalize them on social media and say super mean things we're just going to say oh it didn't work and we're going to move on with our lives like adults so i will say that and for those of you who listened to the patreon episode on funny girl you already know but 
I went to see it and I saw Julie Benko the first time and she was phenomenal and she had a lot of she had to win over the audience they were pissed that she was performing and not Beanie and I heard this one guy in the lobby be like you mean the stars out and I can't get my money back like oh how are the turns have tabled (laughs) the energy in that theater was cranky and then she slowly won them over she was great at the comedy she was very like sharp and hitting all the contrasts and like she was very funny she was doing musical theater she was singing musical theater she's an amazing singer obviously she's very jazzy singer her voice fits the material really well she looks like fanny bryce the real fanny bryce in a way that barbara streisand even doesn't and then i went back to see beanie feldstein and i was like you guys are being assholes to her and i am ready for her to prove me wrong and i have to be honest she didn't vocally she was not bad but i understood after seeing that why people were being critical and it was because of the nasality because of her vibrato because of her she has like a a break and like her head voice is a lot more light and floaty and you know people aren't used to that kind of thing and so she sounds really young and really People were saying she sounded amateurish. I see where they got that from, but she's clearly trained and knows what she's doing. And she's not a bad singer at all. She's quite a capable singer. I don't, she just doesn't sound like you would expect her to sound. And I personally don't love the quality of her voice. And I get that that is not a lot of people's taste. And that is fine, especially when you're going to a score. Not only are you going to Broadway, but you're expecting the score to be sung in this like revelatory way where you want the person to like take you to church or whatever. Um, so I get that. I get that. However, what I was really disappointed by was her acting because I had seen Julie Banco do it so well and hit all the comedic beats and I felt like Beanie just didn't quite go there. And that was really disappointing to me. And that made me sad because everyone had been like, she's so good at the comedy. But at the end, basically the whole performance just felt really low energy. But at the end, she has her like dramatic moment in the last like five minutes of the show and she was phenomenal and i was like it all makes sense she is used to acting on camera period came through in every moment of that show like she was fine but the the comedy the heightened nature of it either wasn't there or felt forced and i completely get that because like when you're used to acting on camera and doing such subtle work of course you're not used to being like wacky crazy zany theater person you know so it felt like she just didn't quite like lean into the comedy as much as I wish that she had. But the singing was better than I expected and the acting was not as good as I expected. <laughs> but still, she was fine. She was yeah. perfectly capable. Certainly no one is deserving of bullying, but especially it's not a performance that even if that was okay to do in certain scenarios, it's not something that warrants such outrage. And that was... What I was immediately just struck by the day after reviews came out is, you know, I knew I knew when I saw that show, the reviews were going to be bad. I knew it like I there were multiple things that I kind of saw with my watchful eye that didn't work, a lot of which weren't Beanie. Um, I knew that the casting was uh, not what anyone expected. And it was something that only certain people could probably like warm up to and that's me uh that's why i I, uh decided not to be a theater critic also because uh i am too easy to please (laughs) i am way too easy to please so i was like i can't be a critic because i like everything um Mm -hmm. but i knew the reviews were going to be bad and that's fine like bad reviews is like the point of criticism is we write bad reviews we write good reviews we like we we write in the in between reviews uh that's what critics do and critics are professionally 
you know, able to do this in a way that typically there are exceptions is not like dehumanizing and terrible. Yeah. Whereas random people on social media with no profile picture or like five followers, however, do not have the, uh, the, the career experience to know how to critique something without bullying them. Like it's middle school. And that was what I was appalled by. I wasn't appalled by the reviews for the most part. There were a few reviews that I was like, I'm, I'm sniffing, I'm sniffing something out here that I don't like. The one that said, I didn't pay to see Tracy Turnblad or whatever, like, one of them mentioned Tracy Turnblad in the review. I was like, well, fuck you, first of all. I was but like, after seeing the yeah. show, I was like, I actually see where that came from, because she does have the perfect voice and energy for Tracy Turnblad. She would be such a great damn Tracy. She would be so, and I hate saying that about another fat person, but she would be a way better Tracy Turnblad than me. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I feel like she would be a really great Julie Jordan. Um, oh okay yeah I could see that um but that's what I was appalled by I just saw so many people either bullying her and saying you know mean things either about her performance not critical things mean things or I saw other people kind of like getting this like sick joy out of watching her downfall it was like yeah. schadenfreude if that's how you say the word I it's think schadenfreude it's and I learned that from Avenue Q it's like schadenfreude which I think is how it's pronounced um yes. According to Avenue Q. (laughs) But um, people got this really weird sick joy out of seeing her downfall. People like thought it was funny. People thought it was hilarious. People were like, ha ha ha. Oh my God. Beanie's getting slammed. Ha 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 ha. And I was like, why are you enjoying this? Like, I think this is sad. And even if I was someone that immediately was like, absolutely no, this is a terrible casting. This is a terrible show. This is a no, no. I wouldn't be happy to see this happen to anyone. I mean, this is just sad it's just sad to see this happen to anyone yeah I'm I'm with you there and it it is so much more like piercing when it's somebody who looks like you and the only person who looks like you on a Broadway stage and I wish people could have compassion for that and realize that like that's a totally valid feeling if you've never seen yourself represented on stage and you finally do in this huge way and it's complete bomb and I mean, I was hoping this would open opportunities for fat actors like myself to play Fanny Bryce in regional productions and maybe even community theater productions in school productions in just other productions. And I know so many fat Jewish actresses who would be amazing fannies. And that is obviously not happening. I mean, they didn't cast an understudy in the image of the star, which is fine because Julie Banco's great. But, like, they do that for every other show, pretty much. And I don't understand why this is the one time they didn't when the star is fat. Like, why is it this one time? And I know she was not cast because of her fatness. It had nothing to do with her fatness. And I have known that from the beginning, more or less. But, like, it really had nothing to do with her fatness. Like, it was because she was famous, period. That's it. But if you're casting anyone who exists in any sort of marginalized body or identity, you have to be carefully considerate about the implications of how you're marketing them, who you're casting as their understudy, how you're talking about them. And I think that that was a huge, a huge miss throughout this entire scenario. When you cast a fat person to understudy a thin person on Broadway, then we can talk. That's it. (laughs) And not as Madame Morrible. Thank you. I mean, like, no hate. That's fine. But, like, it doesn't count when it's the villain role and it's she's understudying, like, a 70-year-old lady. Sorry. It doesn't. I 
<laughs> I've gone in for that track. I love that track. It's amazing, and more ensemble should have a fat track. But, like, you know, this, like, I want a reverse of this. Yes. I also just want us to have, like, replacement roles be, be fat actors and actresses, too. I, I want to see a fat Christine Daae someday. There's no reason why not. In fact, there's more reason why, as opposed to why not, because the original opera singer that Gaston LaRue uh, kind of inspired, was inspired to create Christine's character by. Her name was Christina Nielsen, I think. And in today's world, she would be considered plus size. So actually, from a Wait. dramaturgical... Holy fuck, I didn't know that. Yes, oh. yes. Because a lot of opera singers, you know, at that time were, you know, plus sized or today's perception of plus size. Um, so from a dramaturgical perspective, uh, actually, it makes way more sense to have a larger bodied Christine than a thin Christine. Wow. Mm-hmm. I'm going to keep that in mind when I no, self-tape think of me for no reason. No, please, <laughs> please, please do it for me. Please, please live my dream. I would love to. I've been singing, you know, I grew up wanting to sing that song and wanting to be her, but I convinced myself I wanted to be Carlotta because I saw a fat person do it on Broadway. So... I sort of latched on to the idea of being Carlotta. Plus, like, it would be fun. It would be fun. But, and I would, I honestly, I would love to do it. It probably is in my dream roles. But I had to, like, bury the dream of playing Christine. Even though, like, every time I watched that movie, I would sing along to all of her songs. I sang Think of Me in Voice Lessons when I was, like, 10 or 12 or something. And, like, I think that actually probably was the role I did want to play. But I just couldn't let myself go there. And that's because you were essentially indirectly told oh yeah you you couldn't because there had never been anyone and also directly told <laughs> yes also directly by like teachers yeah. and you know all the bad yeah, people yeah, yeah, yeah you know and then I didn't even develop my legit voice and I feel like I have I've had a pretty natural high soprano since I was young and I I knew that I had to be a belter if I wanted to do musical theater, partially because of being fat, and that's what's expected of fat people. And so I taught myself to skrelt, and I never wanted to do anything else because that's what made people clap for me. Because fat people can only ever be big and loud and proud and confident. And turning party tricks and doing impressive vocal gymnastics or riffing mm -hmm. or belting really high so that people have a reason to have us on stage. Otherwise, why would you put them on stage? Like, it's like that. Why... Why would we be, like, the soft, pretty, romantic lead that has yeah. two men pining for her? Like, oh, no. We're also, I think you said something in your article about it, how being fat, you have to be excellent. And you have to, there, you have to be so excellent that they have no choice not to put you on the stage. And to see a fat person who is just fine, just mediocre, like, it doesn't happen. Every famous fat person is famous because they're fucking phenomenal. At, you know, that, that may not be true of someone like Beanie Feldstein, who's very industry connected, I guess. But she is a great actor. And if she wasn't, she would not be this famous, would she? Like, I don't know. You know, and especially on Broadway. If you look at any person on Broadway, and yeah, the standard is very high for people who aren't fat. But all the fat people, they're Kiala Settle. They're Alicia Umfrist. They are incredible singers like incredible and there's also that conversation because most of the time fat people can't be in the ensemble so you have to be the incredible lead singer in order to get cast at all it's a very like all or nothing mentality that we're fed is like we either have to be the absolute best all the time at everything or we are just the nothing you know we're just like what you said earlier just like the annoying little bugs on the ground yeah 
I was having this conversation with my dad the other day and we were talking about nepotism in the arts and he's a violinist and violin teacher. And so he like teaches a lot of students who are coming up and sees like, you know, the various levels of ability and stuff. And he was saying that because nepotism is so strong, people who are extraordinarily talented still get through, but people who are still very capably talented, they don't get through, even though they're more deserving than maybe some of the nepotism babies who do get roles and work because they have the connections. And nepotism is a super interesting thing to bring up because I know that when people were like, I I saw this more on TikTok than on Twitter, like in mm-hmm. TikTok comment sections, when people were like viciously hating on Beanie and liter- they they would literally say things like, it's okay to bully her because nepotism. Like, oh, I've like, seen that we- as well. And I thought that was a super interesting justification they came up they came up with because there are other nepotism quote unquote babies on Broadway right now who got roles because they are nepotism babies and TV and freaking everywhere and TV I mean, and come yeah, on other and I have not seen people bully them because they are nepotism babies especially like my understanding of Broadway like there there is a lead right now on Broadway I think who you know has parents or something that were also on Broadway and everyone was super excited when this lead came on as they should be because this lead is super talented and I'm very happy for them. So I was like, well, that, uh, that, that sounds like bullshit. I don't think you're bullying her because of that. Also, I don't like nepotism either. Obviously I, I, no one does, but, uh, once again, I don't think that we should bully people who have done nothing to directly like harm someone unlike people who are being cast in funny girl now who have a past of directly harming people word (laughs) and also it's like if you were a nepotism baby would you not take advantage of that come on come on but i definitely thought that that was that was bullshit when they were saying like oh we're bullying her because of nepotism i was like no you're not and then a bunch of people started saying well her dad funded the show her dad produced the show she only got it because her parents bribed the producers or were the producers. That was literally such bullshit, because here's the thing. Complete bullshit. No, here's the thing. Being a theater journalist, I hear things before other people hear things. I don't mean that in a weird, braggy, doomwah way. It just is how it is. I I knew that Beanie was going to be cast. I also knew Ramin was going to be cast a very long time before anyone else knew that. Um, I also yeah. knew who originally was going to play Arnstein, and then Ramin was kind of like they pivoted towards Ramin. But so I I hear information, whether or not, sometimes sometimes it's not true. Sometimes it's a rumor. Sometimes it's true. Um, but I hear it very early on. And I hear it from people who are doing the same type of work I am. I have never, ever, ever once heard that her parents are producers, that they invested in the show, either secretly or definitely not publicly, because you can Google it and you can find this information and Google is free. And there is no paper record of this happening. And like, people are like, oh, when you say that to them, they'll be like, oh, well, it was secret. I'm like, okay. I mean, I, I don't know who you are because you have no profile picture and you don't have any content on your profile. But I certainly have not heard any actual people that I know in real life and I, I know like the careers of and the identities of say this. And I've asked people and they're like, no, I didn't hear about that. So whether or not that ends up being true accidentally or not, it seems like it's just something that a lot of people just kind of wielded as a sword of justification. Right. People were like, why was she cast? It must be a conspiracy. It's like, baby, no, she's famous. Why was Hugh Jackman cast in The Music Man? 
Like, I don't think he bought it. Why is anybody cast on Broadway? Exactly. Like, they do need names. That's, that's like, how you have to get a show produced these days. It's nobody's fault except for capitalism. And, like, they're just trying to make their money. Like, that's, at the end of the day, that's all it is. It all comes back to money. And people who are trying to find non-money conspiracies, no. All the conspiracies are just money. But it all comes back to the the great thesis of my article is... Even if Beanie is terrible in this show, which I don't believe she is, even if those rumors are true that she was bought into the show, which I don't believe they are, nothing entitles you to be allowed to bully someone. And no, for those who only read the headline and did not read the article, I am not talking about reviews by critics. I am talking about people on Twitter, whether or not they are in the industry, whether or not they're Broadway fans, just either bullying her or rejoicing in the act of bullying her. I I just think this might be an unpopular opinion, but I just think that being mean is not fun or likable. I think it's very unlikable and I don't like it. Word. And that that is what I'm saying. Like, just stop being mean. If you don't like something, you can say, I didn't like this. It didn't work for me. And you can move on with your life. You don't have to uh, slam on it for days on end on Twitter and also add uh, super mean things in with that. Um, And again, the great thesis of my article is it's super weird to see this happen to Beanie because I have seen other people be miscast on Broadway in similar ways. 100%. 100%. I can think of two this season. I said on TikTok, they asked me to name names. I won't. But um, (laughs) uh, seriously, there's multiple people on Broadway right now who are also vocally miscast and i have never seen anyone be bullied for it i've seen bad reviews for it as there should be yeah and in both of these shows also the understudy is more suited to the role than the main performer and that hasn't stopped them from not getting the same level of hate like and that hasn't and as you said in your article there is like this insane championing of julie banco which she is wonderful she's an excellent performer um but that's not happening for those other understudies and or for any understudies at all like i saw the understudy for usher in a strange loop and i haven't seen the the like main guy who regularly does it um but holy shit he was incredible he was incredible and nobody's talking about him when they really should be because you know even if like and i again i haven't seen um jackel perform it but like even if he is equally wonderful like that understudy is giving a banging performance and deserves to be talked about the way julie banco is come on and i like full-heartedly agree with this i am an understudy stan when i go to a show and i get a slip that says the lead is out and the understudy is on I get thrilled because I have this firm belief that this is my hot take. Understudies are always going to be a bit of a better performance than the yeah, lead. Yeah, they're I, so I excited. Like it's it's their one shot to uh-huh. prove themselves to you. So I I feel like it's always going to be an, an excellent performance. So like I am not anti-championing the understudy. I am curious why I have always championed the understudies, and I'm curious why I've never seen it happen until now. All of a sudden, the lead is being bullied, and other people have been miscast with better understudies this season and in all of Broadway time. And I just haven't seen this happen. And I'm like, hmm, this is weird. What is it that sets Beanie apart from these other people who were not bullied, from these other people who had understudies who were better, who uh, people don't even remember the understudies name, which they should. I love understudies. You have to like evaluate the sociology of the situation and be like, what is different here? And is there some 
like unrealized unconscious bias in these people that is fueling this hatred and vitriol and it's like both things can be true she can be a better performer and more right for the role and you can also be fat phobic <laughs> like the two two things can be true and that's what I think of in all of this because I do agree with a lot of the criticism about Beanie Feldstein and like I do agree that her voice didn't fit the role perfectly but I mean I think it was good enough but and a lot of people think it was like so bad I guess but like I I do agree that like there probably are better people for it there are better plus size Jewish actresses for it there's you <laughs> I honestly genuinely was not intending that to be self-promotion um however my website is happyrosemores.com but anyway it's just like this can all still be true just and every time I've said this this smells fat phobic to me people come into my comments and they're like she was just bad she didn't deserve it and I'm like I just I just really feel that like we can't eliminate fat phobia from this conversation even if everything all the criticism was objectively true which as we've said we don't think it is I just really feel that like the way that people have shat on her, some of the specific criticisms she has gotten smell fat phobic to me. The fact that they did not cast a plus size understudy or any other plus size people in the show says a lot to me. The fact that is, do, do you consider Caitlin Kinnan in plus size? I personally don't. I've seen people say it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, but she's like not what the standard Broadway, Broadway body is. She is Broadway plus size. There, Broadway, Broadway plus, plus size. size is, are you a size four or right. below? No. Right. Then you are plus size. <laughs> also saw her understudy. Also, not Broadway plus size. So, why is it that the only performers we're casting in a different way are the ones who are in marginalized bodies in this specific way? And, you know, there's been such a huge Broadway diversity push and it just has not extended to size at all. And it's so weird because that's so tied up in ableism and in, like, racism and anti-blackness specifically. Like, we need to, we need to learn. Oh, my God. Don't, don't get me on a tangent because I wrote, I wrote my college thesis on Mm. the, on the patriarchal and racist uh, origins of fat phobia. Oh, that's awesome. But also, I was going to say, my second ever article I ever had published was for TDF Stages and it was called why I think it was called like why does no one wear my dress size on Broadway yeah um and it was basically just like hey Broadway you know how you're always like we love diversity we love being an inclusive community that champions you know marginalized stories and identities which we know is not not evident Mm -hmm. they just say that it's not evident right but well they'll they'll do the virtue signaling of casting an array of conventionally attractive people of different races. But (laughs) that's pretty much all they do. Yeah, and my article was just like, why have you not included fat phobia in that conversation? Why have you not included plus-sized or fat or larger body, whatever term you're comfortable Mm -hmm. with, representation in that conversation? Why are you so keen on diversity, but there is no body diversity on stage? And I wrote this article expecting, like, five people to comment and be like, oh, yeah, that's true because it's just so like obvious like this is this is so obvious like yes we need to work on this and this article blew up and people were like oh my gosh thank you for writing this like as if I had just like you know said the most controversial thing on the planet and I was like I thought we knew this like I wrote this just because it's how I feel but I thought we all knew this I think thin people don't notice it if I'm being honest I think they just don't notice it which is crazy because I know 
I could never could never be me. Yeah. But that was that was my second ever article that I had published and all I said was we should be more diverse we on stage. Yeah. So let's talk about Beanie's departure from the show, our last topic. Um, So for those who don't know, Beanie Feldstein posted on Instagram about how she was going to be departing three months earlier than expected after she had already been announced to be leaving early starting in September. And immediately we were all like, what's the tea? Because she said the production was going in a different direction. And we were like, oh my God, who is going to replace her? Like, that's what they obviously mean by different direction. She's been getting bad reviews. It hasn't been grossing very high lately. Clearly, she's been replaced. And then one minute after her post, the show drops, uh, we're going to announce it at 1 p.m. tomorrow. So suddenly, the internet is in a tizzy. Many things are happening. My TikTok's blowing up. And then the next day, they announce Leah Michelle is coming in to fill the role, as many people suspected. Now, Leah Michelle, for those who do not know, obviously, star of Glee, Spring Awakening. She was in Les Mis on Broadway. She's a Broadway veteran. She has not worked in several years because of all the horrible allegations of things she did on the sets of Glee and other projects. She said very racist things. She told a black woman she was going to shit in her wig. She has supposedly just been a nightmare to work with, turned people away from, like, socially and like just from being a parts of the process like she is very notoriously a diva and bad to work with and like I love the word diva I want to be a diva but like in the bad sense (laughs) so this is a very sad moment because not only are we having like for especially for fat people because not only are we having like the one representation of us on Broadway being unceremoniously booted out of the most progressive role a fat woman has ever been cast in on Broadway but we have her being replaced by someone who is known to be extremely like mean and cruel and has said these racist things and who's like you know problematic and I, I hate that word but that's what I mean like she's clearly done some terrible things she's clearly burned some bridges and yet at the end of the day they don't care as long as it makes money and it is so sad to see because it's just like there's no accountability in this industry period there's none people me too the illusion of it no there's none there's none me too never reached broadway that's that's it, it it didn't and you know whether or not it was actually as productive as it could have been in hollywood in music i can't speak to because uh i am not knowledgeable on that the way i'm knowledgeable knowledgeable about theater but no matter what it never swept the theater industry the way it swept film the way it swept music it never happened and that is kind of like one thing that i've just kind of not held a grudge with the industry about I don't like that word but it's something that I've always just kind of been like huh why yeah. why why didn't you let that why didn't you let that wave over overcome us because it needed to and it still needs to but and it goes beyond you know me too is you know typically about you know sexual abuse romantic abuse partner abuse but um it goes beyond that it goes to racism and it goes to transphobia and all of these things that we've seen come up in conversation and just bullying and just just plain old bullying and we've seen this come up in conversation so many times since me too and since 2020 about various people in the industry thank goodness scott rudin did 
get kind of taken a step back the way that he did. And I was shocked it happened. I wish I'm glad and I'm shocked it happened. And it's, it's so much, it's a slap in the face to see this, this, uh, kind of step backwards in casting because I, the biggest thing I kind of said all the time, because I knew Beanie was going to get replaced eventually is, gosh, I just, I just hope they don't replace her with someone thin. And that was like the worst case scenario in my mind. The worst thin person they could have replaced her with. Yeah. It was like, that was the worst thing I could imagine in my head. Cause I, I think I had trust and faith that it wasn't going to be Leah. I would, I don't, I, I crave the, the naivety that I had. I know. Like a month ago. Oh my um, god. But I was like, I just, I hope they replace her with another larger bodied or plus sized actor because we want to keep re- representation where we put it. Um, but not <laughs> no, only, <we> don't. <laughs> no, no, apparently not. But not only did we replace her with someone who doesn't offer the same representation she does, which, you know, we kind of knew or that would at happen. Least any kind of representation. Like, I would be so great with, like, a fanny of color who was also yes. Jewish. Or, like, a disabled fanny. Like, anything. or Anything that just anything. brought something to it. But not only did we replace, you know, someone who brought representation with someone who didn't bring the same level of representation, I guess, because not plus size not larger body and like i get that it's not required by this role but it 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 does enhance this role and it's it's like this is not a fat role i'm not deluding myself into thinking this is a fat role it's not in the text i'm i mean you could argue that it is in the text as if you heard the patreon episode you know i have a dramaturgical argument for why fat fanny bryce does make sense but i i get that it's not a fat role but this feels like them being like it's a thin role we just let a fat person do it one time because she was famous yeah but to not only have you know that representation kind of taken away in a sense it's replaced with someone who like this is this is leah's first time really being back on broadway this is her redemption arc so it felt like a slap in the face because we all know beanie was bullied who she was bullied by varies upon who you ask if you ask me i say she was just bullied by the public yeah i say the same I, I wouldn't make that claim about critics because bad reviews happen to everyone and anyone. I also don't think she was bullied by the producers. They did stick by her for quite a while. They tried their best with the situation. Yeah. But no. anyway, no matter what, Beanie was bullied. And to see Beanie, who was bullied, leave this role potentially because of the bullying, we don't know what caused it. We don't know if that played a factor into it, but I'm sure she's human. I'm sure no matter what it impacted her, to see her replaced with a notorious bully who has bullied especially everyone, but especially marginalized people, just felt like a slap in the face to so many of us. And that's where the article came from. My friend Ashley Hufford, I wanted to tweet it, actually. That was my first thought. And I wanted to tweet it as soon as the news came out. And I was like, no, because people are going to bully me for saying this. And I I don't want to... I don't have the bandwidth for that right now, today. Because, you know other stresses in life were impacting me at the time and then Ashley tweeted it and I was like oh good Ashley tweeted it thank god someone said it Mm -hmm. someone said it and and I was like thank god someone said it and then I noticed just all these people agreeing with Ashley and I was like whoa wait are people agreeing with us are people agreeing with us and the likes keep rolling in on on her tweet and the last I checked I think she had 20,000 likes and I, that's the reason I wrote the article, because obviously, of, of course, the idea to write this article came to me the minute I knew Leah was replacing her, which was before a lot of other people knew. Of course, the idea came to me. 
But I was like, no, because everyone's going to uh, bully me. And, you know, I'll take that as a journalist. I absolutely will. But it was just a week where I couldn't put that on my plate at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but then I saw all these people agreeing with Ashley and I was like, oh, my God, maybe I won't get bullied. <laughs> and I was like, OK, I will write it because it seems like even though I thought I was like the radical opinion here that no one was going to agree with me that everyone was going to think it was a reach 20,000 people agree with Ashley yeah I was also very shocked by the TikTok I made about it and the reception to that because I made this TikTok being like this fucking sucks and it's tea and I'm going to start with it being tea but like I have to add something in at the end about how it sucks to lose this representation in this specific way like maybe one day maybe one day in a utopia it would be totally fine and normal and not a huge loss for a huge starring role on Broadway to go from someone who was fat to decidedly probably no one ever who's fat again. But that's not today. Yeah. So I was shocked that people agreed with you, with me, with Ashley, because I expected us to just be completely silenced on the subject. And I was like, okay, well, you know what? I'll put out this article. And I still still was convinced that this article was going to be slammed. I texted all my friends and I was like, I am going to get eaten alive for this. And I'm just letting y'all know, like, if you happen to have the capacity to like talk me through stuff throughout the week, like it would be great to have a support system. And they were like, yeah, "Yeah, of course, of course. Like just text me if, if it gets to be too much. And then it was okay. That's great. And I was shocked. I was like, I mean, yeah, people That people means it's working. Me. That means that I'm doing it work. I hope so. <laughs> uh, yeah, there were trolls. Yeah, there were people that disagreed yeah. with me. Yeah, yeah, there were people who I don't think read the article because they would make claims that I made claims that I literally made the opposite of in the article. Um, and I was like, oh, this went better than I expected, which I hope means that our industry is coming into an age where we are more ready to talk about this than we were five years ago. 10 years ago, because I truly, in no world did did I imagine my article having a, like, (laughs) 99% approval rate, (gasps) so to speak. Whoa, that's actually shocking. Wow, that's amazing. Congrats. I've kind of waited in my mind just based on all the positive messages and comments I've gotten versus the negative ones. And I don't think more than 2% could have been negative. That's amazing. And I'm floored. And maybe they just knew not to mess with me. Could be. Maybe they just knew not to. I don't know. But I I was like, this is, no matter how painful this situation has been to watch for a lot of us, no matter how much it felt like a step backward to see this casting, this is a step forward that I was able to put this article out there and people listened. And the big reason why I felt confident putting this article out there is I took it to the editor of American Theater, Rob. And I said, I know this sounds crazy and you can turn it away. But all I ask is that you read it and you think about it because I linked Ashley's tweet and I said this tweet, you know, a lot of people agree with it. And there's a lot of demand, I think, for this article. I think people yes. want to read this and hear this. I, I was demanding it. <laughs> and he emails me back and he said, you know, when I saw the title, I immediately was like, um, what is this? But I read it and you helped me understand and you helped me realize what was actually at play here. And I think you're right. And I think that a lot of other people are going to read this article and um, at first think that's a reach that these are not his words. He did not say that's a reach, Um, but they're going to read it and maybe feel the same. So he was like, yeah, I'll run it. And I, that there's just, 
so many ways that I've been shocked throughout this past week of people listening, people trusting, believing what I'm saying, what you're saying, what Ashley said. And that is a good sign for all the bad signs I think that we've seen. I agree. That's a very good silver lining. So that's what's up in the funny girl verse, in the Broadway verse, in the theater journalist verse. Thank you, Meg, so much for joining me. This has been so great. And I'm so glad that you came on. And I'm so glad that you gave us your take on this article. I highly recommend it. I will, of course, put it in the show notes. And Meg, where can people find you on social media? Oh, yes. Okay. So my Twitter is just my name, which is Meg Masseron, M-A-S-S-E-R-O-N. Same for Instagram. Um, And that's really all that I use publicly. My TikTok is more of my lurking space. But if you happen to find it, I will gladly hang out with you on TikTok. But it's like it's a little Easter egg hunt. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Your task. Your task is in front of you. (laughs) Some listener out there is going challenge accepted. No, no one cares. Literally, I tweeted I think like seven months ago. Why does it, why, why does that matter specifically? I don't know. I'm sharing irrelevant information, Mm -hmm. but I tweeted once that I was like, I just want everyone to know that somewhere in the depths of the internet, there is still a recording of my 19 year old self playing Phantom of the Opera on kazoo. Do with that information what you will. A ton of people swore they were going to find it. They were like, I'm going to find it. And I was like, yeah, try, try. They never found it. Oh my God. It's probably super easy to find, but somewhere I believe there is a video of me singing my version of You'll Never Walk Alone. That's based on my high school chorus singing it at 8 a.m. And it's You'll Never Squawk Alone. And it goes... (laughs) When you squawk through a storm, you know. I'm going to find that. Well, I think we ended this episode very well. 10 out of 10 guys. (laughs) Do you have anything that you want to leave us with or like where we can read some of your work? So most of the articles I've written have been with Theaterly, who I love. So if you go to my Twitter and just click the link in my bio, that's my kind of author page for Theaterly. But um, if you want to find all the work I've ever done, there's this little like kind of LinkedIn type thing journalists use called Muckrack. If you just Google like my name and Muckrack, you will find my Muckrack page. And that is where you can find everything I have ever written, including a few things from college. So there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. The real ones will muck it up, I guess. That was so bad. It, It worked. I'm not going to edit it out. Okay. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Anytime. It was so wonderful. And thanks everybody for listening today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of More Than Tracy Turnblad. If you liked it, hit subscribe and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want more, be sure to subscribe to our Patreon, where we post two bonus episodes a month, as well as other writings and extra perks. More Than Tracy Turnblad is coming to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival this August. For more details, you can go to our website, morethantracyturnblad.com, or click the link in the show notes. We do also still have an Indiegogo fundraiser running, where you can donate and receive perks like postcards, shoutouts in future episodes, and exclusive access to the recorded performances of More Than Tracy Turnblad, the solo show from its New York City run at Don't Tell Mama. Be sure to follow us on social media at More Than Tracy T and find more information on morethantracyturnblad.com. 